But let's uh, turn to more serious things, because I've got the chief of police here. It's nice to see you again. Good to see you, John. Okay, so the mayor did not play Santa Claus yesterday. How do you frame not getting the money that you were looking for? Well, listen, uh, you know, I can't can't, uh, not acknowledge that I'm a a bit disappointed. Um, But, you know, there's still still a council vote uh, to go. And uh, I think my role at this juncture is to really just uh, highlight the concerns we have so that uh, decision makers can make an informed decision. There is this $8 million honeypot. Are you hoping that some city councillors decide that that should just go to the police? Well, you know, I've been hesitant to speak about that $8 million million dollars quite frankly I, I just don't think that's my role at this juncture okay you know at this point I think you know my role needs to continue to be to just highlight the risks associated with uh, uh, you know not uh, reconstituting our board approved budget and um, and see how things progress okay what are those risks because I mean you and I talked about this last week I said are yeah. we necessarily impoverished in terms of our police services if you don't get that money. So what are the risks? Yeah, I think, I think John, there's, it's important to highlight that we work very closely with city staff in advance of the board meeting in December where we tabled a, our budget re- request of, of our board. And uh, we landed on $20 million, but that, that $20 million is the result of a number of other bridging strategies the city brought to bear. Um, that is you know, not untypical of the budget process. So that is something that does happen, uh, not just in our budget, but you know, I, I'm led to believe in other budget line items in the city, um, and we landed on 20 million dollars. But the 20 million dollars, we were very clear to city staff and at the board meeting, represents my ability as the chief of police to continue to hire police officers and civilian professionals to ensure that our pipeline remains open, um, uh, because we have such a degraded level of service in a number of areas. Uh, while we continue to modernize and reform, uh, so we need to continue the investment to reconstitute our capacity. Um, and that to rebuild capacity takes a long time in policing. Uh, well, we spent time this morning going over numbers, and uh, 2021 to 2023, more people left the force, both civilian and uniform, then were added to the force. So well, that strikes me as odd. Well, that is one of our big concerns is, is you know, are we able to keep up with not just uh, the, the retirements and separations, but actually the growth of demand on our services. So I think, you know, on top of the complexity of retirement and retention, that is a post-pandemic world and in policing, uh, retention is very challenging. It's a very con- competitive labor market and uh, our police officers are quite frankly, incredibly highly trained and sought after in other jurisdictions to move over. Uh, so it is a competitive human resource uh, uh, issue for us. And uh, so we, we definitely are challenged with that. Uh, but we also have a growing demand in services where our, the, the number of calls keep rising. And um, you know we aren't able to meet that growing demand for our services. So uh, the general policy has always been that Toronto police officers have to be paid better than any other force in Ontario. Is that still the case? Well, that's a labor issue and, you know, a debate with the association. And um, I think when we look at those discussions, I mean, there's some practical realities there that uh, the differences between agencies is actually quite small. And when we talk about the highest paid or or the delta that exists, it's it's often quite small. Yeah. And you're saying that some people just opt, but maybe, maybe cost a living in Toronto is too high, so they'll opt to go work for another police force. 
Well, that's, that's a very real discussion, and it's also complicated uh, by lack of opportunity within the organization. So one of the challenges we're facing, in fact, as speaking with officers about this yesterday, is the lack of mobility within the organization to continue their career development. So we are very focused on core service delivery. We're keeping cops on the front line, but that's also causing um, you know a challenge for our people to develop as police officers because they're not able to go do other specialized opportunities, and in fact, those are degraded uh, because we're so focused on core service delivery at our front line. If you're understaffed at Toronto Police Service, then what are what is Toronto Police Service not necessarily getting to that it should be getting to in terms of, you know, offense or whatever? Well, I think I think uh, the staffing reflects itself in a number of ways. One of them is, of course, what we talk about is response times. The most egregious, difficult circumstances, the, the greatest danger, our response time is average 22 minutes yeah. or more. 60% of the time, no units are available. The response time goes up. <clears throat> but you also see the impact of our resources in case closure rates and clearance rates in our ability to, to present cases in court effectively. Uh, we're very concerned that our clearance rates are dropping and our ability to actually meet disclosure requirements and uh, get cases through court are definitely being challenged. Okay, clearance rate as in homicide or everything? Well, all, all clearance rates. Our homicide squad really is enjoying uh, an incredible clearance rate. Yeah, it's been a frankly. great run. Uh, but other areas of, uh, of the service are not uh, meeting the standards we'd expect. wanted to ask you about this uh, inquest into the death of Sammy Yatim, who was shot to death by a Toronto police officer. 63 recommendations. I'm sure you're going to go through it with a fine-tooth comb, but what's your uh, initial impression? Well, listen, <clears throat> the, that inquest uh, really reminds us of uh, the pain that um, many people feel in the aftermath of uh, terrible tragedies like that, and I think it's important to acknowledge that uh, that pain continues. And, um, you know, we have to take stock of that, and we have to be laser-focused to do everything we can to uh, to be better uh, in everything we do all the right. time and seek excellence. Uh, the recommendations, I think, are uh, speaking to the need for um, greater opportunities for early intervention as it relates to our members, uh, training around de-escalation. So that and would other, be flagging things know. like how frequently do you yeah. take your gun out. How frequently does a police officer take their gun out in an average year? Uh, I don't have that number before me, but it's yeah. it's not as high as you might expect. No, I know some cops yeah. who've never pulled their gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and there's, there's that. Uh, there's certainly a de-escalation, of course, is very, very important. And I think the, this particularly inquest uh, speaks to uh, issues around bystander engagement uh, with our between our members to kind yes. of hold each other accountable. Okay, so what is your reflection on that? <clears throat> because there is a certain, they used to call it the brotherhood, but a mm -hmm. certain aspect of policing, which is I'm not going to rat you out even if I think you're a bad police officer. Yeah, no, I, I listen, I, that's again, uh, I think a really important topic for people to understand that, that professional policing is actually considerably different uh, than that, and perhaps, you know, the way it's portrayed in uh, different environments. Um, in the professional policing context, first of all, we have already embarked on bystander training as a service. Uh, we've, of course, learned uh, over the years and taking proactive steps in advance of the uh, of the coroner's inquest uh, to do that. Uh, but I'd also highlight that our officers are incredibly professional. They're trained to a very high level. They're trained in a way that is informed by our communities. Our communities actually help design our training right. in the scenarios we take uh, uh, expose our officers to. We don't design those in a vacuum. We design those with people with lived experiences. Uh, so they're very highly trained. And I'll tell you what happens in, uh, in an excellent professional environment 
is people hold each other accountable. Uh, much like other professional environments, I always think of a sports metaphor. You think of a sports team. When they get to the locker room after uh, a period they're not proud of, they hold each other accountable. Our members, quite frankly, do that every single day. And they hold each other to a higher standard. And when they look to the left and right uh, uh, in their workspace, uh, they expect excellence from each other. And they do everything they can to provide that level of service. But I, I do have to acknowledge something, because uh, we are talking about budget. Uh, one of the challenges we have is we have 140 sergeant vacancies and 40 staff sergeant vacancies. Um, I need those positions filled. I need them filled because we are right now uh, very... So who does that? Uh, well, I, right now they're vacant. Right, okay. And, and I need police officers uh, in the pipeline so I can continue to promote. At the end of the day, a sergeant means a police officer out of a police car somewhere. So 140 sergeants being promoted means 140 less cops doing frontline service delivery. So I need those positions filled to provide good governance, coaching, mentorship, and accountability of our members. Last chance to make fun of the mustache? Oh, we'll save that for the hallway. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. Good to see you again. Good to see you. Good Thank luck. You. That is Chief Myron Demke of Toronto Police Service.